Come on in and grab a seat. It's good to see everybody. We are in the great and awesome book of Matthew. Come on in, grab a seat. I know. Awesome. Awesome. You can grab a Bible on the way in if you want to follow along. We have a number of verses in the book that we'll look at. Fun to sing those truths, isn't it? To, to believe in a spiritual reality and to sing those truths and to believe that there is a unseen but real God that is pleased when we worship Him. That is pleased when you take time out of your morning and you come and you sing with His people and worship when you want to he- read His words and hear how they might apply to life. God is pleased. And um, it's really a special thing that in, in our mortality and our, um, that, that we're beings that, as, as Mike said a, a thousand times, we've failed, that even in all that, that there is a peace that we can please God. And that we can please God this morning and just hearing everybody sing. I, I just, it's good. It's good. And God is pleased. And now we're going to be here together and look at a crazy passage of Scripture. So I'm going to read it and then I'll pray here. Matthew chapter 8. Verse 28. And when he, that's Jesus, came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold... All the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Well, Father, I, we come before you. Lord, and we ask that you would encourage us. We ask that you would place us even more, one more step into walking in your way. We ask that you would affect our thinking and our lives. And more than anything, Lord, we, we trust and ask that 
you would be here and you would have your way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are about five exorcisms that are recorded in the book of Matthew, one of which we just read. And it seems like for three of them, Matthew's isn't even, it, the, the exorcism is the, not, not the important part. The important part is the discussion afterwards or the controversy that surrounded it. So there really only are a couple exorcisms that, that are recorded for the point of the exorcism. Um, and he expects his disciples perform exorcisms there's a time when he hears that that there are other people outside of his circle and group are performing exorcism and he jesus seems to think that is fine and it is striking because there are a lot of demons that seem to be around in the gospel stories we have lots of conversation about them we have uh lots of uh, demons coming out of people we we have stories it doesn't seem to be the case in the rest of the New Testament. They don't, get, they don't get mentioned nearly as often. It doesn't seem to be cased in the Old Testament. They are not mentioned nearly as often. And so it seems to be at, when Jesus is walking the earth. And as I think about that, that makes sense to me. It makes sense to me because... The kingdom of this world is the kingdom of Satan, and he, he can kind of run, in one sense, lots of things down here. And then Jesus comes down as like this invading spiritual good. And the invasion comes down, and Satan goes, well. And demons come. And it seems like lots of spiritual things are happening right there where Jesus is. Battles happening right there in the spiritual realms. It would make sense that if Jesus showed up in the earth, spiritual stuff would happen all the time on all sides, good and evil. And that's really what we see in uh, the Gospels. So, let's walk through this story. We're going to walk through it just one verse by one verse. I'll have uh, some comments after each one. So, verse 28. And when Jesus came to the other side, stop there just a minute. So, the other side, so he crosses the lake. We read he crosses the lake. He gets in the boat with the disciples, and he's going across the lake where the Gentiles live. Where, and it is, so Jesus, in one sense, is the Jewish Messiah, except he preached to Gentiles. And he went to Gentiles and he's doing miraculous things on the Gentile side because he wants all people, all tongues, all, he wants people of every, every tribe. And we know this isn't a Jewish area because um, Jews don't raise pigs because pigs aren't kosher. They don't eat them. So Jesus is in a Gentile area. We'll go back to verse 28. Came to the other side to the country of the Gadarenes. Sure, two demon-possessed men met him. Stop there. This is kind of different. So, in Mark and Luke, they record the same story. And when they record the story, there's only one man. But in Matthew, there's two. 
And uh, for some people, that really bothers them. Pretty basic fact of the story. And I have really come to love it. I love the fact that there's one guy in a couple stories, and there's two guys in this story in Matthew. And the reason is, that's what you would find if there were eyewitness testimony about something, and they were giving that eyewitness testimony, and they hadn't talked beforehand, and they hadn't planned it all out. They just gave their testimony of an event. There would be differences in, 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 what, in the stories they tell. That's just naturally human how it works. Uh, I had a friend, and, and he was uh, an insurance adjuster, and he would be called on to go to the scene of accidents and to take eyewitness testimony. So it was his job to take eyewitness testimony, and so he, would, he became to be very adept at, oh, this is, this is the differences you find when you ask this person, and you ask this person, and you ask this person, this is kind of how, and you can kind of understand what is true and how people experience an event. And he said the, the big red flag is when it's all the same. Right? So you, you, know, you go to a, a frat party or something and there was an accident and you get there and everybody tells the exact same story with the exact same details and, and you realize pretty quick, oh, something happened. And they all get in a room and they got their story straight. And then they shared their story. And so, uh, you know, he'd ask some random question like, oh, you know, what color shirt did the guy have on? And then they'd go, you know, they wouldn't have an answer. They'd be all panicky. But I digress. The, the idea is that I love these differences because it's a mark of truthfulness. It's a mark of true eyewitness testimony. And I, um, and in this case, it's kind, it kind of be rather easy to harmonize. It seems like probably one guy who probably he was the one conversing with Jesus or the demons were conversing with Jesus from the other guy and there may have been a second guy he might have not really spoken he might have kind of been in the background but it seems like uh it seems like Mark and Luke keyed on the one key guy and Matthew keyed on the two guys lots of people harmonize it that way and that's not too hard to see, but the difference, I really appreciate the difference. Did we even finish the verse here? Okay. They met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And that's really the point of this, of this verse is these guys didn't get to live in normal society. These guys live where nobody wants to live. They live out with the tombs out in the caves. All right, verse 29. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Wow. These demons know Jesus better than the disciples do. 
Because they don't have a statement like this when calling Jesus the unique son of God until the end of chapter 14. And these demons are doing it here. They know who Jesus is. One writer said this, He is firstborn of hell that knows Christ and yet hates him and will not be subject to his laws. They're even aware of their ultimate fate in Revelation 20, verse 10, in Jude 6. They know what's going to happen. They know they're going to come to judgment. They even know Jesus is the one that is going to consign them to that judgment. But you know what all that knowledge brings them? It just brings hate and violence and taunts. Not repentance. What distinguishes a saint of God from a demon? It's not knowledge. It's loving obedience. That's the distinguishing mark. So if that's the distinguishing mark of a saint, what is the distinguishing mark of a demon? Well, it's evil. Evil is the distinguishing mark. Demons come to steal and kill and destroy. They are anti-church, anti-God, anti-God's plan. They will happily destroy any family or any person, but they especially love to destroy the people of God. Satan took down Adam and Eve brought the fall of man and he hates the Jews and it is interesting the Jews are almost known for the suffering they have endured on the earth Satan tried to destroy Christ when he came and Satan and demons tried to destroy you and me they try to deceive and divide and lie and divert from what is best. And he masquerades as an angel of light. And if he can't stop you from becoming a Christian, he'll try to stop your Christian life from becoming fruitful. He wants you to be passive. He wants you to be inactive. He wants you to be discouraged. He'll try to get you busy in daily activities. Or he will try to destroy you physically. He wants you to be full of fear and worry and pressure. There's character things. He'll blow on them like anger to bring the worst fruit. He'll try to deceive you and use alcohol or even eating habits to destroy you. The goal of demons, Satan and his demons is to destroy you because he hates Jesus. But the, the verse, out of the demon's own mouth, <laughs> his time is limited. 
his opportunity for causing harm to you is limited. The arrival of Jesus signifies his time is short. Jesus is cleaning up the forces of evil because when he comes to rule, there won't be any. And one of the points of the story is that Jesus here is, he has this matchless, unassailable authority and power over all the darkness and over all the evil. So the demon, I mean, the disciples later, they're stymied by some demon and they can't perform the exorcism. That doesn't happen to Jesus. Because Jesus has all the authority. It doesn't matter that he's not in a Jewish environment. It doesn't matter the geography. It doesn't matter the race. He takes food that you could hold in your arms. And he feeds thousands with it. And he stops the wind and the waves. And he heals the sick. And he raises the dead. And he turns sinners into saints. This is Jesus' power and authority. But let's stop. Let's step back a second. Where did the demons come from? Well, from what we can piece together in the Bible, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, demons were angels, and Satan, Satan rebelled against God as kind of an upper-tier angel. And when he rebelled, a third of the angels went with him. So that's real interesting. Demons are fallen angels. It means they're limited. They're limited. First of all, they're limited in authority. These demons even to go into pigs or do whatever they want. They had to ask God. The authority structure is still there. They have, there's an authority. And it's not them. They have limited power. They're, you know, they have a conversation here with Jesus, but it's not haggling. There aren't two equal parties making decisions here. Jesus is making the decision here. They are limited in presence. They can't be ever at the same time. And there's one-third to two-thirds. Now, we, either fortunately or unfortunately, we don't know the number. But... Greater are the angels with us than the angels with Satan. And greater is the one who is in us than the one who is in the world. And Satan's doom is sure, and he knows it. The court date is set. Now, our culture doesn't talk very openly about about demons. I don't particularly talk very openly about demons. And so I, I want to step back just a second and just go, hey, there is, there is a spiritual world. And when we talk about ourselves, we kind of understand that. Because we, when we look at ourselves, we go, oh, I'm not just physical. I'm not just atoms. I, that we use different words. So we go, I have a soul. Oh, that's must be it's in the spiritual realm because it's not in the physical. I'm a, I, or we talk about well, I have a consciousness. My consciousness, that's not physical. 
And so we think of ourselves with this non-physical attribute. And there are billions of people that focus their whole life in the spiritual realm. And that's really consistent across culture, across time. And a lot of those people talk about, oh, they're, they, they concentrated on the spiritual realm, and that spiritual realm was transformational for them. See, I believe that angels and demons exist, and what we haven't given, been given the hardware to see them. What I mean by that is there are sounds right, that exist, I guess, scientifically, that maybe a dog can hear, but I can't because I haven't given the hardware to hear it. Right, there are visual things that exist scientifically, but my eyes can't see it. I haven't been given the hardware. So then, We have to say God hasn't given us the ability to see the spiritual realms. Why? Well, it seems like God really likes faith. But that, to me, the next answer that immediately comes to me is like, why does God really like faith? And and there may be many answers, but one that I think is interesting is, is faith is trust. When, when I think about having a relationship, a relationship has to have trust in it. So when I drive down the road and, and I have someone in my car, let's say my wife is in, in the car, she trusts that I am driving with her best interest in mind. Or... Or, or maybe in our relationships we have um, things happen and we have to fill in. Oh, I, I, I'm filling in your motives. This happened, but I don't believe you had, a, had an evil emotion or, or, or motive or you weren't really saying that. And, and we fill in for people's motives because faith and trust in the person is part of relationship. And God really wants a relationship with us. Now, I don't believe, based on Scripture, that if we could, if, let's say today, we're all here and God showed up. Now, I don't know what you would think that would look like, what you would think, but you, you see God. Or, uh, let's say you see God and then He does some miracle, so, some, something so that there's, there's, in your mind, proof that this is God. I don't believe that if you saw that, that that would automatically mean that you would have faith and you would trust Him. Reason is Scripture. So let me... The generation of Jews that saw more miracles more amazing, grand things of God than any other generation would probably be the Jews that were slaves in Egypt. 
And if you think about the grand, mighty Egypt, the economic power and the military power, and then God bringing plague after plague, miracle after miracle, protecting the Jew, setting them free, culminating in, and they're walking through the sea with a wall of water on each side, and they're walking through a million people, and God just provided this way in his name through Moses, and then they get to the other side, and they've got an army chasing them, and God just says the wheels fall off the chariot, and he has, and then he has the water not be up on a wall, and it comes back in, and then they're out at the bottom of the sea. And they praised God, and they saw God, and it was miracle number, I don't know how many for them. So many great, powerful, awesome things. And the rest of the book of Exodus is them struggling with faith and trust and them not having faith and them not having trust and them sinning and them making a golden calf and story after story after story after story. What does that mean? Perhaps our struggles of faith aren't rooted in the fact that we can't see God. I'm going to say that again. Perhaps our struggles of faith aren't rooted in the fact that we can't see God. Maybe they're rooted in the fact that we don't really want God to be real. Or we don't really want to trust Him. Because what would that mean for me if God would, was real? I don't know if I want to trust Him. That level of honesty is awareness is rare. But I think the Scripture points us in that direction. Okay, let's keep going. Verse do a few verses here. Verse 30. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. So many things that are interesting there. One of which pigs can swim. Okay. So first of all, Why did Jesus let them go into the pigs? 
Some people can struggle with that. Why? Why do you let them do it? How many answers do you want me to have? I can have zero, or I can have many. This is my decision as a speaker. I can have zero or many. I don't have one. I'm sorry. So I'm going to go for many. Why did Jesus let him go into the pigs? Well, let's ask some other questions. Why didn't Jesus stop the injustices of Rome? Why did Jesus in John 5, when there's paralytics that are filling a whole courtyard, did he just heal one? Why didn't he raise more people from the dead? Why didn't he stop suffering from happening? Why didn't he stop 9-11? Why did the person that I care about have to die? See, that question is the same question we ask over and over and over and over when we see suffering, when we see death, when we see it's that question. And it is... It is almost like we know the plan isn't for some of these things to be in the world because we feel the injustice. Death is an injustice. It shouldn't be. It's not supposed to be like that. People aren't supposed to suffer. And we know we're created for something that's better than what is here. And it is like every religion that's created, every philosophy, every, it, all say, it all starts with the fact that there's something that's not right. There's something that's broken. There's something that shouldn't be. And it's death and it's evil and it's suffering. And if you're a Buddhist, you're trying to find the answer to the suffering. And if you're a Christian, you're trying to find the answer to the suffering. Because the suffering is the thing that drives us crazy. And if, and it, and and for most people, it screams the loudest when there's death. Ah! That's just, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. It doesn't feel right. And so the first answer to the question is, it's just another question along with all the other questions about why doesn't God do X or Y or Z. But the second answer to the question is Jesus is going to follow the plan. And he can't torment them until the appointed time. Now, what the demons mean by torment them is send them to the abyss. The abyss is mentioned all through Revelation. The abyss is... uh, the clearest one is in Revelation 20, 1 through 3. It's this place where evil spirits are kept. There's this verse in 2 Peter 2, 4. I wanted to actually show it to you. For if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them into the pit and delivered them to chains of darkness, being kept for judgment, and then he goes on. But see, there is an abyss. There is a pit and there are demons that are kept there in chains 
awaiting judgment. So some demons right now are in the abyss, chained, waiting for judgment. And there are some that get to roam free for a time. And in the end, they'll all be consigned to judgment in the lake of fire. Revelation 20. So Jesus goes, hey, the appointed time has not yet come, and I'm going to follow the appointed time. And so, really, that's the answer to the question. I might let you go into the pigs because it's not the appointed time. Third answer. The pigs doing this crazy thing because the demons went into them, it proves the exorcism. Right? You can't really see an exorcism. You can't really see a demon. But when the pigs go crazy and run off the cliff, you see it. It brings it to light. And that is helpful for the people to really see and understand. And it, it seemed to have unearthed the heart of the people there. And both of those things, unearthing the heart of the people there, is in Jesus' interest. And having the miracle be really seen in this area is also in Jesus' interest. And so why did Jesus let the demons go into the pigs? Because Jesus was going to use that for good. And then the last answer is this. And, and this answer starts with the fact that demons don't like to be homeless. <laughs> demons like to be inside people or inside animals. Or they, they, and, so, and so theologians get that thought from Matthew 12, and we'll get there. And so the thought is, is that because demons don't want to be homeless, they didn't want to just be to just not have a form, so they just, what, what's around me that I can go into? I'm going to ask go into the pigs, and they can continue to do evil from pigs. A, her, a herd of pigs, 2,000 pigs, if you look at the other stories, a herd of pigs can, can do a lot of damage if they're all crazed. They can continue terrorizing the people from pigs. And of course, Jesus is in total control. And drowning doesn't seem like, if that's true, then the drowning of the pigs is not in the plan of the demons. That was not the plan. So, so now they didn't want to be free, but now they are. But, you know, one of the things we call the sea is the abyss. Isn't that interesting? So, there are people who believe, John Piper being one of them, and I, many of you know who that is, and so I mentioned that name, who believes Jesus drowning them in the sea is sending them to the abyss. Because they get drowned in the sea and their spirits are free and then they continue to go down to the abyss. And so Jesus actually did send them to the abyss. Well, that's really interesting. At the very least, it seems to be kind of a picture of... So the demons get thrown into the lake. Pretty soon, demons are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And so it doesn't... 
it seems at the very least it's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. But at worst, at least for the demons, they were sent to the abyss. So why did Jesus let go into the pigs? Well, because he was doing everything. He was, he was doing what they didn't want to have happen. He was using them to spotlight his miracle. He was taking the, the hearts of the people and, and exposing it. And so that's what answer? Four? That's my fourth. That's my fourth answer. All right, let's keep going. Verse 33. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This account doesn't stop at the authority. Jesus' authority over the evil powers, account over. Like some of the other ones in, in, in Matthew chapter 8. It stops with this discussion of, of the people's response so they go off and they tell the town what happened, especially about the men. Why is it especially about the men? Because they knew them. These guys knew. The townspeople knew the guys. The guys knew the townspeople. These men had stories. Did they have wives? Did they have kids? They probably had parents. That there was a story. Like these townspeople knew like, this is Bill and George. They're people with names, and they go into the town, and they say, what happened to Bill? And so all the people come out. And this is where the story gets so stat sad, because instead of focusing on the transformation of the two men... They focus on the fiscal losses. They don't say, hey, Jesus, you helped these two guys. Would you help this woman? And would you help this guy? And would you help over here? And would you? Like, they don't do that at all. They say, you have to leave. And to them, Jesus is just, oh, this is a holy man, and he's out here, and he's causing trouble, and we need to send him back to his own people because that's kind of where he belongs. He can make his trouble over there. Jesus shows his power and they don't want him around because, because of the fiscal losses. And, and let me tell you something. The fiscal losses are considerable. So I looked up how much a pig is. If you wanted to buy a pig today, and it depends on what site, what, who you're going to buy from, but I, instead of having a specific person we're going to buy pigs from, I decided I'd just ask Google how much and just go with that. So if, if, Google, exi- if Google is right, you can decide if that's true. It's $750 a pig. From another story, we have about 2,000 pigs from another story. From another gospel that says the same story, is about 2,000 pigs. Oh, 
750 times 2,000? Did I punch it into my cal calculator right that that's $1,500,000? I do that right? I didn't do it twice. That's a lot. Right? That is a ton of money. So, so just a second. Jesus puts humans at infinite value. Jesus puts people and people's good as the highest value. Because clearly, to release men that had been demon-possessed is of more value to him than the loss of 2,000 pigs. You know what Jesus could have said? He could have said, I'm sorry, I feel so sad for you. I'll make it up to you. He didn't do that. He didn't do that at all. He stood there as an authority, as the one who made the pigs, who gave the pigs, who can take away the pigs. That's not the, that's not the focus of the story. The focus on the story is the value of the people. That the that the people are free. That the miracle happened. But that's a lot of value. Jesus' values are spiritual realities, loving God. And the second commandment is like it, right? Loving people. And that is a challenge to me. It is a challenge to me because do I prefer pigs or people? And that's part of the test, I think, of, of life. Do I love him and do I love his salvation and do I love people or do I love my pigs? Because I'm okay with people as long as they don't affect my pocketbook. And it is amazing how shallow I am. Oh, I don't, I don't really want to have a party at my house because I have a party at my house and then I'll, I'll just have to buy all these snacks and that'll really break the grocery budget and it sounds like a lot of work and so I don't really want to do it. Compared to the value that Jesus puts on people and the people of God or even lost people and, and all the, the, the effort and sacrifice Jesus made to go get people that, that don't know him yet. And his, and, his, and his understanding about how important community is and all his commands for community and all this great value God puts on people. And I'm here like, I don't want to buy a veggie tray. Is my value people? And is your value people? Because it is God's value. And it's challenging. At least to me. Second inference. That was my first inference. My second inference is, um, Satan hates prayer and worship. Hates it. 
If you want the antidote to demons, it's worship Jesus. Satan fears prayer. The reason he fears prayer is when that God answers and when God decides to do something, he can't really stop him. So don't ask God to do anything, please. So here's the inference. I think that means the biggest spiritual battle in your life that we can say is the same spiritual battle across the board, right? We each have our personal struggles. But across the board, I think the biggest spiritual battle we have is prayer. Satan really doesn't want you to pray, and he can make it really hard to try and pray. In Ephesians 6, there's a passage that's just really weird. And it's, we're commanded to kind of be like a soldier. And so we're supposed to put on all this armor. We're supposed to put on, we have shields and breastplates and helmets and swords. And, and so it's this big long passage about, okay guys, get dressed for war. And, and then it's kind of like the New Testament, a Christian life is war. It's just kind of weird. And, and so I'm like, okay, okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to do after we're dressed? Do you know what Ephesians 6 says we do after we get out all dressed and we're ready for war? Pray. Pray. All kinds of requests for all people. Pray for people. Hear that value again? Pray for people. We're at war. And, and Jesus has won the war. But Satan is not surrendering and he's not leaving the ground and he's still fighting and he's still taking down people even though the war is over and he knows the war is over. But we're supposed to put on all our armor and pray and pray for people and each other and an interceding believer, like interceding meaning praying for other people, it's like, it's like you pick up your sword and you walk out into the field and you defend it. And so you pick up your sword and you go take ground. It is a, it, this, all, the analogy is a war analogy. Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And so, practically, Don't, don't stop praying and let's pray for people. Because Satan hates it. And lastly, I just had an inference here. I just thinking through and I'll, I'll make this brief. But when I think about angels and demons, God and Satan, it's like good and evil. And it's just kind of wild. This is what we make all our movies about. Good and evil. 
there's good and there's evil. And of course, don't get turned to the dark side. This is what we, our stories are. And so good and evil exist. And if good and evil exist, then, then I guess I don't create what's right and wrong for me. I guess there's a higher standard than us because it's not the evil people, right? It's not the evil side that gets to decide right and wrong. They're not the ones that, that set the standard. It would, be the, it would be the good. It would be God who would set the standard. And the standard is just love. And that's what God says he is. And the things that really stay on my conscience are the things where I don't. Where I hurt someone. Where I don't do something I should have. Or I hated, or that thing came out of my mouth, or that relationship broke, or I took that, took that from someone. We, we under, we, our conscience understands when we break love of people. And Jesus came. So that we can be forgiven. But that conscience can be clear. And if, if you're here and you're just kind of on a spiritual journey or you're kind of exploring the things of Christ, you know, there is a question. Do we want to follow Christ? My wife and I were making a decision recently and I said, you know, we can't make the decision. We need more information. We're not ready to make it. And if you're here and you're not ready to make a decision to follow Christ, like, I respect that. But maybe you need more information. And I, my suggestion is to read the New Testament. You can make, have your own thoughts from source material and then read the New Testament for yourself. And... And my trust is that that will be a, a blessing and encouragement to you and that that's why I mention it. So, love people, pray for people, read the New Testament. Sound okay for our practicals? All right, I'll pray and close this. Well, Jesus, we all worship you together. The matchless one. The one with all authority in heaven and earth. And it has been given to you. I thank you that you love people. You value people. I thank you that includes each one of us. Lord, grant us the grace to walk your values in this world. And thank you for the chance to focus on you and worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.